Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Kelly Start. Kelly is a physical therapist and co-founder of San Francisco CrossFit and MobilityWad.com, where he shares his innovative approach to movement mechanics and mobility with coaches and athletes. He travels around the world teaching his movement and mobility course and works with elite Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard forces, athletes from the NFL, NBA, NHL, and MLB, and the national world-ranked strength and power athletes. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Becoming a Supple Leopard, which has revolutionized how coaches, athletes, and everyday humans approach movement and athletic performance. One of the reasons I've asked him on Leave Your Mark today is because he believes that every human being should know how to move and be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. He's on a mission to help people perform to their ultimate potential. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much. So in my little um, endeavor to find something out about you, because your assistant told me you would not answer any of my questions, uh, I found out that you were an alpine skier when you were young and you grew up in Germany in Garmisch. So what discipline were you a skier? Well, you know, I think one of the fun things about this conversation, hopefully we'll have today, is that we really, I came up in an age where, man, you were a generalist. You had to do all the disciplines, you know, Mm -hmm. and and you were slalom. You know, obviously people have to specialize at some point, but we skied everything and we really respected everyone who could do everything. You know, all of us were multi-sport athletes. You know, we often had multiple sports going on at the same time, you know, and it was expected, like, even if you didn't play soccer, you would play soccer. We're going mm-hmm. to play soccer now, so you better play soccer. Um, we rode our bikes everywhere. We raced mountain bikes. We were skiing. I was just in a culture where physical capacity was the currency of the realm and that everyone did everything. I mean, we rode our bikes. I cross-country skied to school. Well, I lived in a little Bavarian hamlet, which I appreciate really did make things easier. But, uh, you know, you, you adopt the, the, moral, the mores of the people around you and everyone around us was competent in the mountains and, you know, you had to be able to be really fit just to go have fun. And I, I really appreciate that experience. And I think that was when I, I've known for a long time that my, really my only skill set is pattern recognition. I'm really good at it. Seeing, seeing, relating, understanding what the sort of, I think, salient pieces are of something. And, uh, you know, I think our good friend Stuart McMillan calls them kinograms and I'm good at, I'm good at seeing that. And, um, you know, I remember being in a really technical ski racing clinic with the reigning world cup world champion and they was diagramming the turn and pressure in the boots and how to, where you should go and where your body is and what you should feel. And I remember thinking like, 
this, this guy's talking to me. Like, this is how I think. Mm. And that really, I think, was one of the first times I became meta-aware of my own process. And that meta-awareness, understanding own ability or own thinking process, I was able to luckily apply to literally everything else I did. And my mom was a teacher. I taught kayaking early, started kayaking professionally early. And, uh, you know, way leads to way. And literally to this day, this is still how I learn new skills. I watch, I can pay attention. I, you know, I can feel, and, uh, I'm really just, I'm grateful that at an early age, I was pushed into so many, so many different experiences. And when I came back to the United States, I was about 15. I was a freshman in high school. I had never played football. I had never done, you know, some of the, you know, I'd gone to a high school in Germany where I ran cross country and wrestled and some things like that. But, uh, I, you know, my ball sports were lacking except for football, you know? And so, uh, you know, I got to come back in and to see how it went. I had never really lifted weights before. Everything was sort of body weight. It's interesting now, I think we're at this, this age where those of us who are on our late thirties and forties, fifties, we became, I'm starting to see the patina of, of heavy play come up where we didn't have as much formal movement training as I think we needed. I could have really, I remember having a conversation with my mom, who's a single working mother, she's a professor. And I was like, mom, why the hell wasn't I in gymnastics or, or ballet? Did you not love me? And she was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I mean, seriously, are you trying to cripple me as a man? And she was like, well, you know, and she got really upset. She's like, oh, we was a single mom. I was doing the best I could. And no ballet was important. I was like, well, it was okay. And you totally messed up. So, um, you know, what we did was we were good or we strove to be competent in a lot of things. Mm. And the answer was building more competency, begat patterns and experiences that you could transport over 100%. You know, I've come to believe, for example, as a tangent that every child needs to have some kind of sliding sport in their life. And that can be skateboarding, that can be skiing, that could be riding a bike down a hill. Like there's something that you need where you can take input at a high rate and plan ahead and in real time react and sort of have a lot of pre-motor function. And that skiing for me, for example, and all the things in kayaking made me really good at defense, you know, in any other sport because I could anticipate what was happening, understand the feeling and, and be there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's this notion I think that, has lost in where we're seeing now. So I'm seeing starting to see hip replacements and back injuries and old discs sort of those bills are coming due for some of us who didn't have enough formal movement training. But now the other side is I think we're having to do too much formal movement training to remediate what is a lack, a dearth of experience, a dearth of physical input. And if you go into the, the interweb right now, I think you really see that then there's a lot of programming that's really remedial programming. I don't mean that in like a negative way. It's a really necessity. And there are some really bright people thinking about how are we going to get more sensory motor input into the human? And what we're seeing is that kids are not, don't have a lexicon of movement. They don't have the basic language of, of locomotion and, and the ability to really spin up quickly into a new sport or new skill. And in fact, if you pin me down and say, you know, what is your definition of good athlete or best athlete? I'm like the, the kid who learns the new skill the fastest. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? You can, you know, a good athlete, you can teach them anything. And you know those kids, a kid who could backflip on the trampoline early, and, you know, and she could always just do everything. There's a couple of those kids, in my, you know, walk on their hands, backflip, big aerobic engines. And I was always like, I hate that girl, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, 
But now we're starting to see, man, we're looking at the feet. We're looking at chairs. We're looking, we're just not getting enough input. And from a simple mechanotransduction model of looking at the fact that the body needs physical input in order for normal expression at a cellular level, from collagen expression to disc expression to just decongestion, we are failing as human animals. And I think that's where sort of the script has flipped a little bit. And we're going to have to really wrap our heads around where we're going and how to get out of this because uh, it's, it's a bad deal. Well, when I look back at just to play off that um, you grew up with a single mom, like you mentioned, and your dad of two, uh, two girl, two young girls, when you look back at how you discovered sport and how, because obviously from what you say, you, you discovered a lot of sport and it sounds like maybe your mom wasn't even the influencer there. So I'm curious who was or how, how you did discover it. And what are you doing to second, to play off the back end of that question? What are you doing as a dad now? Um, when you look back at that experience to sort of manage what you're sa- seeing as a, as a, as an issue, so to speak, that you just spoke about? Well, I'll say that my mom knew, you know, and maybe it's because uh, my wife would say I'm borderline ADHD. And I actually have on testing with our friends at Athletogen, pretty high genetic drive to move markers. So my genetic drive to move is like 98th percentile. So I'm like, let's go, let's move. And I think probably my mom figured out that a kid who was flat ass tired <laughs> and broken from physical exertion was an uh, easier teenage boy to, to manage. So my mom always encouraged me and she did a really good job just showing up. And I, you know, I sucked at a lot of things for sure. And, um, but with, it's interesting because now this awareness with the kids, you know, my, my oldest rides her bike to school. She rides it's probably like a 5K ride to school. Um, she's 13. Our house is set up like, a, like an amusement park. I've got uh, my, my, one of my favorite new group of people who raised their heads, raised their hands and said, hey, we can improve the ball. It's this, this group. I don't even know them, but I started following them on the internet called the Foot Collective. And they're just obsessed with, they're like, hey, look, we've got to look at the feet again. We've got to create culture of, of really understanding the miraculousness of the feet, what we're doing that's pulling on losing capacity in the feet. And they're not anti-shoe in sport. They're just saying, hey, look, if you're wearing big cushy shoes all the time, you can't feel. And if you can't feel, you can't see what's going on. I mean, look at that. Look at the development of the fetus. And you're going to see how that you know, spine relates to the feet. You know, just that I mean, these are integrated structures. And from balance and proprioception of footwear. And, but, you know, we, uh, they have these great balance beams and we just built this, you know, it's not a PVC, but it's a, it's like a steel beam, round beam balance beam that's in my kitchen. And we have a slack line and monkey bars. And, you know, we, our pool is almost four meters deep. And, um, you know, we're trying to get as much background input. Our, we believe in the, the, the power of sport and all the lessons therein, we don't necessarily think it automatically begets better citizens. Certainly you have to just look around and see that there are pretty crappy parents in sports and crappy kids who are, who are doing what they're taught, right? Learned. But, you know, you just, for us, sport isn't an option. Like the choice is what sport do you want to do? And when you're 18, you can choose that. You can opt out, right? But you have to have a physical practice. And if that's not sport, it's CrossFit. If it's not sport, it's Peloton and Pilates. I mean, choose, choose what it is you want to do, but you were, our family lifts weights and mm-hmm. our family, all my girls, you know, my girls can all swing kettlebells and have basic movement literacy. I mean, they engaged in squat Tober. And I think 
you know, one of the things that's really important is modeling this. And I think that's, that's really the issue. If you want your kids to be more active, look at yourself. Are you walking 10,000 steps a day? Do you have a physical practice? And that physical practice isn't necessarily exercise at the gym, but are you thinking in this sort of 24 hour cycle? And I'll give you an example. My wife is a two time, former two time world champion, just got back from Argentina and the, the world championship. She competed as a master's now and just won another world title as a master in whitewater paddling in Argentina. And, uh, you know, our girls just accept that this is the way it is, that the mom is a better athlete than dad. And uh, they, they know, fortunately, that you get all your mitochondria DNA from your mother. So they're super stoked. And, uh, you know, but I, I think it's really a long game. And, and to remove and to simplify the language of movements and, and to remove the complexity and diversity of being a generalist is really at the heart of a lot of problems right now from chronic pain and opiate use. And I mean, look at what Gray Cook is doing and the FMS screening he's done on kids is really like, you know, we're, we have a little podcast radio project and I think, uh, and I'm just pulling this straight out of EO Wilson. This is consilience. And, you know, he said, hey, look, the, the highest goal of science should be to improve the humanities. This is what consilience is all about. Like, and pure science for pure science sake is important, of course. We need to understand how the universe works. But the rest of us, you know, why do I work in sport? Um, I work in sport because it's Formula One, because I can pressure test and really understand things at a critical level. And I see the truth. You know, it, you can't sometimes see what outcomes are unless we're at speed or load. And then we can take all of those lessons, you know, in physical therapy right now, there's this BPS resurgence, the biopsychosocial model. And it's really a crucial piece to understanding chronic pain and helping people understand the role. You know, they're not just a mechanical machine that there's stress and environment and nutrition and loving relationships and, and sense of efficacy. All of those things impact your, how you experience the world, especially, you know, pain and, what I'll tell you is if you're a coach, no shit. Like you can't, you can't have a conversation with your athletes around performance and not know what's going on in their life and their stress load. So some of this, which I think is really important that people are realizing it again for us, the rest of us are like, well, I mean, this is Tuesday. Like, you know, I walk in and touch my athletes and talk to them every day. And man, I'm like, Hey, why are you sucking today? Oh, I didn't eat breakfast or I was really stressed or, I mean, this is a conversation that goes on and on. So we use sport to pressure test ideas and concepts that we can bring them back into the real world and actually improve the lives of the rest of us. Because yes, we all are, have the athletic capacity, but most of us are living like beggars and we don't even recognize sort of the miraculousness of the human being because we're not using any of it. And it's no one's fault. Everyone's a product of a system. It's not, it's never malicious or overt. It's that, you know, you inherit a sense of, cultural experiences and then that's how you reflect yourself in the world and unfortunately people are failing or being failed by our systems so for example the the government just put out sorry you'll jump back in there i'm just rambling but I'm fired up <laughs> um the government just put out their new activity guidelines in the united states and it's 75 minutes of vigorous aerobic exercise a week did you get 75 minutes of vigorous aerobic exercise a week plus 150 minutes of low-level aerobic exercise a week, and they recommend you lift weights two times a week. I'm like, well, good. Let's apply that to the fucking population. And who gets a passing grade? Like, like 
1% of 1% of us. And, mm-hmm. and that is, I think, the issue at stake now and how I'm now come to view my experiences in sport and performance of saying, hey, look, I, we can't lose a generation of people. We're going to have to figure this out and we're going to have to decentralize who's holding the keys to the castle. That's got to be moms and dads putting flames out and, and, and shifting low side control back to communities and back to families. What do you think we can learn? You grew up in Germany. Germany's a, my impression of Germany. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, there's a big sport culture in Germany, but it transcends elitist sport into the uh, culture of community and to the people. And my impression is, and I b- would be curious of what you, what struck you when you moved back to the U S um, in terms of, you know, to me, what, what happens in North America to a degree and certainly the United States is there's kind of an elitism around sport to the degree that when you, if you don't make it to the big league, so to speak, you're no longer an athlete. And I'm wondering if that's what you see or you relate to or what, what your experience has been looking back. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think, I think what you're really getting is to the, the heart of the matter is culturally, who are we and what does that value? So uh, we go back to Europe we go back to Germany usually once a year and my kids love it there. And one of the reasons they love where I grew up is that there's a, there's a bike path everywhere and you're expected to ride your bike everywhere. And when I grew up, the bike biking was freedom. And we would ride, man, I, we would ride 50 K on the weekends. No problem. Just moving around going, Hey, let's ride to Austria to get chocolate. Let's mountain bike. Let's, you know, we just moved around the Hamlet. And, you know, when we're there, we rent bikes or buy really shitty bikes and our kids, you know, they're up at early and riding to the bakery and buy, you know, and riding to the swimming pool. And in fact, there was just an article in New York times. I don't know if you saw this, where this woman who had lived there for a long time was talking about culturally how much support she had in that coming back to the United States around development of athleticism and activity. Like let's not even say athleticism, let's just say activity and how built in it was. And you know, that her kids after school, they could j- jump in a gymnastics program or they were bused to a swimming pool because it was a cultural value to teach kids to swim. And that was part of their physical education. And as long as we, and I think it's a normal and complicated expression of the system, but one of the things that we're seeing right now is that as long as we fetishize professional sports the way we do in culture, and this is everywhere, this isn't just the United States, but we're particularly, I think, egregious, then that changes our our understanding and experience and expectations at the collegiate level. So now we have a very professionalized collegiate experience. And let me be just clear, if anyone's listening to this as an adult, as kids, if you, the second your kid signs a, a, a scholarship or an application to play or a contract to play at, at university, they are professional athletes. That is a professional level organization, except those kids now have two jobs. They're going to be full-time students and absolutely professional level athletics. Which something we're going to have to consider because all of a sudden, you know, go to volleyball tryouts and you're, you're going to see a ton of kids in a professional system and really the professionalization of youth sports, particularly in high school. And also, unfortunately, way down into middle school. You know, I hear about, you know, we have conversations with parents about their elite 11 and 12 year old. And I was like, hey, by the way, those things are anathema to each other. You cannot have an elite 12 year old. That thing does not exist. She is in the gymnastics program already and she'll be competing when she's 16, but your fucking boy is not 12 years old and elite. Right. And what you're seeing is, is that I think that's just a normal expression of the system. And we lose a lot of kids because of that. And what we haven't done culturally is said, Hey, let's play 
What does that play look like? And let's de-emphasize the emphasis. You know, we really try to get involved with our daughter's sports and volleyball. I just have to say, you know, was really tricky because of the professionalization around that. And we loved it. And my, my oldest daughter, both my kids now went from volleyball to water polo. And I'm so grateful that they had, you know, volleyball because they can read, a, they can read a ball, they can throw. And, and, um, you know, we, uh, I was having this conversation with a, a dad who was like, he's pretty sure his kid's going to play in college. And I was like, your, your daughter's 12 and maybe, but she's 12, you know, hasn't turned 13 yet. And, uh, and I was like, look, I know you don't know it, but a lot of us work in professional sports. And, and when you see a unicorn, you know it. And I was like, have you ever seen a unicorn? He's like, oh, unicorns don't exist. So I was like, but if you saw a unicorn, you would recognize a unicorn, right? And he's like, well, of course, theoretically. And so we're at this huge volleyball, the state tournament, far westerns. And there are these two girls from Texas who are 6'2", 180 pounds, 13 years old, gigantic <laughs> asses, and just powerhouses. They're still children. And they are just crushing the ball at the net and can, you know, leap head. There's both playing on a small net. And I, I'm standing to this dad. And I'm like, hey, remember that conversation we had like three months ago? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was like, see any unicorns here? And he was like, oh. I was like, those kids may or may not get a Division One scholarship. And I said, but that's what a unicorn is. And so I think we all want to, we have this egalitarian idea. And maybe it's wrapped in the DNA of being an American is that, you know, everyone has the potential to be the best. And that's this horseshit. And, you know, really it comes down is that everyone has, a you know, in Europe, everyone's expected to play an instrument in some of these places. Like, you, you, what do you mean you don't play an instrument? You don't sing? Everyone sings. Like, everyone can be learned to taught to sing tolerably well. But the same is true about every sport. I guarantee you, everyone can play a little soccer or a little futsal or a little, like, choose a sport, right? But the kids who are so good are so obviously good and driven and wired that we don't ever have to, it's not, it's not negotiable and it's not, there's no ambiguity about whether those kids are going to go on and be professionals or not. So let's take a beat there and say, okay, so what is it that's so important? You know, right now in culturally here in the Bay area and abroad, I think one of the most important thinkers and writers is a guy named Yuval Harari. And if you've not read Sapiens and his, his follow-up book, Homo Deus, I can't mm -hmm. recommend it enough. And it just really paints this picture of the hit, short history of Homo sapiens. And, you know, in his, in his second book, he talks about the fact that we're all going to be 100 years old no matter what. You're going to be 100. Like, we have solved a lot of the mechanical problems. Of course, cancer is a problem, of course. But, like, some of the, the traditional scourges of the human experience are not there anymore. And the question now begs that, like, well, what, what kind of person are you going to be at 100? And what kind of what kind of movement practice? And, and and it's all there for us, because if you've worn out your hips and destroyed, or you're you're sedentary or diabetic, it's going to be really difficult from 60 to 100. It's 40 years of your life where you're not able to take advantage of the extraordinary life that you have. And you know, I, the Russians say you're as old as your feet. That makes perfect sense. The Chinese say you're as old as your spine. I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense. Which where do you want to start? spine and pelvis or the feet like we're going to get there eventually so <laughs> i think we're at this really interesting junction and it's on us as strength and conditioning i really believe the strength conditioning and the therapist in that relationship has a real opportunity to create change at a community level to create change at a, at a society level and this is where we're going to have to make make the changes happen if we're going to see it otherwise 
our traditional systems aren't, aren't going to bail us out. So mm-hmm. this is where I think when we say and believe everyone should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves, it's a little bit subversive because I'm thinking we need to decentralize it because your physician is, she is not the person you need to go to to talk to about these things. Mm-hmm. This is a good segue point actually for <laughs> wake up out there. A uh, good segue point for a thing I do. Um, I, I read a book a, a while ago called the day you were born. It combines numerology with astrology. And so what I do is read everybody's purpose to them from this book, which I discovered my purpose in, which was quite fascinating. So you are a Libra one. Well, I know this book. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, yeah, I, I actually inter- I interviewed the lady who wrote the book a little while ago, so it was cool. To take your own path, balancing your need for freedom with your desire for love. Let man be noble, generous, and good, for this alone distinguishes him from all beings known to us, Goeth. Goeth knew that to resolve conflict, one must surrender to his most noble side. Goals should have a higher purpose. In Libra, the fruits of fame and fortune leave bitter taste. They demand too much of one's truth and give little in return. The Libra one must learn to accept themselves and to surround themselves with beautiful art, ideas, and people. The Libra one is charming, magnetic, and natural lover. The issue here is when to take responsibility. They love being surrounded by impossible odds, then proving the world just how easily those odds are overcome. How does that resonate with you, sir? Well, I'm sure you can read uh, Stuart McMillan's or anyone else's, and I'd be like, that's me. But uh, unfortunately, <laughs> this Libra one is me. It really is. I, I, I totally get it. And, uh, and, you know, even some of the things uh, I think that are relevant in that is really interesting. Um, you know, it's easy to be a negatron on the Internet. It's easy to get down. And we there's a I have a cabal of friends who are always reminding ourselves, hey, it's OK. <laughs> Don't get down. Stay open. Stay vulnerable. Stay open. It's really important that this is an important time right now and you have to have a thick skin and be willing to just continue to do the work. I think, um, uh, you know, I, if what I understand, if I said earlier, I really like to see, uh, pattern recognition is, is important to me and, and has been very valuable. I think part of that is context. And I think I really have always needed to understand the context. And I feel like where I am, evolving as a therapist and a coach right now is trying to give more context. I think that's why this biopsychosocial model is so like, yeah, 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 we, of course, we've always done that. Like you have to sleep before you perform. Like, what are we talking about? And, um, and so more context is needed. And that means that we have to, we have to give the tie to the runner. We have to be more generous of spirit. We're going to have to go back and do the hard work and have some hung conversations because it's on us. In the last couple of years, or last month or so, we've lost Charles Polican, Leon Chaitao, just two uh, giants and hugely important people in sort of my thinking, stuff I've read forever and ever. And one of my friends said to me, you know, I think he's like, this is the wake up call. He said, it's, it's going to be, we're up to bat. And I'm really there. I have a group of people that I get to watch and, be, and you know, Stuart Camille and I've mentioned many times because that's our, one of our connections. Um, Brett Bartholomew, uh, watching how Mark Verstegen is trying to solve some of these problems. And in fact, there, there's a generation next of coaches who are, are starting to step up. And, and there's some older gentlemen there. I mean, Faf is one of the masters of Coyle and Verstegen straddles that line. But the next generation of coaches I'm really hopeful for and, and thought leaders in the space. And they are they have all the tools available to them. And all I do is see them seek simplicity 
seeking first principles and work really hard to get through the noise. And there's a lot of noise. It's very confusing. You know, what should I eat? How should I train? You know, wh- how, what should I monitor? And I, I think a lot of that confusion gets sent out into the universe and moms and dads get confused by it. You know, parents are confused by it. It's nice to hear you uh, talk about context. For me, context is king. It's like one of the biggest parts of of what we do professionally. And uh, I think it gets lost in translation sometimes. Um, I totally enjoy this conversation. I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, um, what, what drew you to the physical domain of practice, physical therapy, what, or did it find you or, or, or did you find it? How did, how did you discover that and know that that was, was your passionate place and that you should take it where, where, where you have taken it to? I was, uh, again, of that era where it was just go harder, you know, more abuse, more volume, you know, and I had a really bad injury. Uh, I had a, a bad, uh, brachial plexus traction injury or injury. I think the, the traction injury on my neck started off the cascade of, of, you know, a neural dynamic issue and breathing problems and first rib stiffness and missing internal rotation of the shoulder. Cause I was a, a paddle canoe in the stern and had asthma. I mean, just perfect combination of really crappy breathing and really weird unilateral mechanics. And my hand would go numb and lose strength. And I had motor deficits and, and uh, it really ended my career. And I looked around the conversation, the questions I asked were, were telling because everyone was like, well, yeah, this is totally normal. We knew this would happen. And that's a little disappointing. And uh, cause what we start to see is normal accidents express themselves that like, you know, if you just are a woman and you paddle, apparently you have shoulder surgery on the national team. That's just what happens. So it's just, it's a matter of when you have shoulder surgery, not if. And that's, again, you know, I, you know, I think we can do better. I like to think we can do better. Maybe we can't. We can. And um, I was actually in San Francisco and I always have loved to train. And, and it was hard. I think it's, it's difficult for some of the coaches to understand that pre-internet, if you were lucky enough to know Joe DeFranco or – Bondarchuk or some genius coach and you found them, you were just like, you hit the jackpot for the rest of us. We're just kind of blindly, you know, reading men's health or muscular development and whatever magazine you get your hands on. And, you know, I, I knew some, some intuitive ideas, some intuitive truths. Like I was like, I think plyometrics with a medicine ball are important. Like, I don't know why, but um, so I asked my, my girlfriend's parents gave me a medicine ball and I was trained on the national team. And I'm sure it was way too, it was like an 18 pound medicine ball or something, 14 pound medicine ball. And, uh, I found a book in some catalog that was, you know, um, Donald Chu and it was like plyometrics and it was stick figures. It was literally one page of stick figures and the ball would, you know, the stick figure would bend to the right and then it would bend to the left. No technique, no volume, no scale, no integration, just, and so my friends and I did what we normally do. We were like, well, we got 45 minutes. Let's do all the exercises. So we just went through and played them and like, oh, this one feels like paddling. And, this, and we were crippled for three days. I think we avulsed every oblique we had off of every bone. And my, my C2 partner was so pissed. He's like, dude, we can never, we can't be able to paddle for three days because we were so destroyed from throwing this medicine ball for an hour in the gym, like <laughs> meatheads. And that was trial and error. You know, my girlfriend's family, um, discovered the zone and they were the first people to ever ever talk about carbohydrate quality and restriction and you know 
you know, a glycemic index. And I remember being like, this is crazy. I shouldn't eat rice cakes and diet Coke. Like what? <laughs> and uh, I should have a pro, you know what I mean? And so I think people forget that in the 90, early 90s, mid 90s, it was, you know, it was really dark. And there, there were these centers of excellence and maybe they're at universities and really the universities have probably been keeping us alive. But now the internet is here. So, <laughs> you know, it's easier now to, to make sense of what's going on. And, uh, you know, in the terms of uh, discovering it, I was out surfing and I literally had a moment of Satori. And I was like, oh, I need to go to physio school. I'd had some experience with physiotherapists, but I was like, I think I can improve that and really meld that. And when I was a first year physio student, I discovered CrossFit in the first semester. When CrossFit in its nascent state, there were five CrossFits in the world. Greg Glassman was writing on his blog every day personally. And it was a master class in understanding the fundamentals of Olympic lifting, powerlifting, conditioning, calisthenics. And the bar was really low. I mean, someone was telling me yesterday, they're like, oh, you know, they were talking about uh, Greg Cook's FMS. You know, and they're saying, you know, it doesn't predict anything. And I was like, hey, 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 hang on. Can you talk about what phone, can you show me your phone from 1996? And they were like, what are you talking about? I don't have my phone from 1996. I'm like, oh, you didn't own a phone in 1996. I'm like, can I see your car or your cassette tape? And I was like, the, the FMS came out in 96. And think about what kind of exercises you were doing. Cable crossovers, dumb things, right? Calisthenics, things that your coaches, 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 bro told them. And it was really hard to understand what we were seeing. And so now the world has changed a little bit. And, but... 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 14 years ago when I discovered, 15 years ago probably, um, when I discovered CrossFit for the first time, I had only overhead squatted a few times from Dan John. And I was Olympic lifting because I knew I needed Olympic lift, but I sucked and I wasn't very fit. I was a national champion. I had been ranked in the world, but uh, I had, um, turns out I wasn't very skilled and I wasn't very strong and I wasn't very conditioned, you know? And, um, you know, I remember cleaning hundred kilos and thinking I was the man, you know, and now I'm 45 years old and hundred kilo cleans are my like aerobic workout weight, you know? And so, um, when I was a first year physio really struggling to understand what that meant in the language of mechanics and physiology, I really had this dissonance between what I was being taught around short arc quad rehab glute bridges and what athletes were doing. And suddenly I was exposed to all the powerlifters and all the Olympic lifters and all the runners. And I didn't know any of that. And I really had to get a crash course in becoming skilled in all of these movements and at least literate in all these movements. And I had to reconcile that with what I was learning as a physio. And I, I'm so grateful that I found them each in the first semester because I really struggled. Right now, it seems so obvious to me, the interactions. But back in the day when I, we started this, it was not... You know, if you see someone use a band to open up the hip capsule, I mean, that we did that, you know, hip quadrant, you know, plus a little, you know, lateral distraction and what we call hip capsule mode. That was me attempting to do hip quadrant on myself, you know, single lacrosse ball to the thoracic spine. Yeah, that was because I found out that if I was mobilizing those lower thoracic ribs with the hand behind back in that hang archetype shape, that internal rotation shape, I had better scapular mechanics. And that's why we put our hand behind our back and put the scapula, you know, we, and so we, I was really struggling to understand what the role of physio was. And no one at the time that in my world was mobilizing to improve position that actually did not exist. And I'm sure the track coaches were doing it. I'm sure. 
right? DanFAF has been mobilizing, but in my world, I had never seen that before. We mobilized because something hurt or something didn't feel right. We didn't use mobilizations. In fact, if you go into FMS, one of the reasons that we are such synergistic systems is that the FMS really speaks the language of corrective exercise, which is another movement to get better movement. And our model really uses whatever movement system you're using as the movement corrective. So kettlebells are movement corrective. You know, deadlifting is movement corrective. But we have, in all our mobilizations, we consider position transfer exercises. Why are we doing that? To improve position, improve in quality of position, density of position, so that you can go express that in the thing that matters most, which is moving. And so I really struggled to integrate, again, what I was knowing. And I remember the first time I saw an athlete, her name is Eva Tordokin. She's an Olympic skier, high-level athlete, skier. Uh, she's skiing Hall of Fame. She was Olympic lifting, early CrossFitter. She was Masters National Champion. She's having a hard time in her uh, locking out her jerk. And I was like, man, your T-spine, it looks something's wrong. So I laid her down and did some rib screws on her T-spine. Mobilized her thoracic spine, little some rib screws. And then I watched her land and just snatch the shit out or, or jerk the shit out of some heavy weights. And she's like, wow, that's so easy. And I remember being like, mm-hmm. and then I went back to the clinic the next day. I had an MMA fighter there. It was like first shoulder problem. And he was talking about how difficult he was having getting into guard. And I mobilized his hip. I pulled out a belt, Mulligan 101, mobilized his hip capsule, cleaned up his internal rotation. He came back the next day and was like, holy shit. I just crushed some people in my guard. Do that again. But I remember thinking, what's going on here? You know, like suddenly I was, I was able to repurpose the physio to improve positions. And I realized that the formal language of strength conditioning, that when I really was not just exercising the gym, but really understanding good overhead positioning, really understanding good lunging, hinging, that was an excellent diagnostic tool, which cut to the crap for me. So I didn't have to have a lot of correlates for movement. The correlates helped me understand and reinforce what I was seeing if I couldn't understand it. So if I have a hypermobile athlete, you know, and I lay her down and do a sideline shear test on a lumbar, what's it tell me that I already know? Well, it already tells me that she was a hyper mess, hypermobile mess without, and what's the intervention there? Mobilization? No, it's motor control, which is what we do when we put people on tempo and box squat and move slowly and we hinge and deadlift. And, you know, so what, what I realized is that if I could develop the eyes to understand what was happening, what people were training in the formal alignment of strength conditioning, which is bench press and press and jerk and clean and gymnastics, not, not fitnessing. I just want to be clear. And there's no diss on fitnessing, but fitnessing is hard to see what's going on. But if you really go to Pavel's course and watch the shapes and positions You'll see that people will struggle and are struggling more to get in some of these shapes and positions. And that formal good movement training turned out to be an excellent diagnostic tool to understand what was happening, especially at load and speed and fatigue. And then I could come back and I could improve that and then immediately test and retest the changes in shapes. And ultimately, I saw it as a change in power output or change in weight. And we tested that from from our elite level sprinters and, and runners to our throwers, to our power athletes. And we keep, we just keep trying to break the model. So now we're at a place where if you follow us, we really feel like the model, our model for helping to explain sort of what the fundamental building blocks are of complex movement really ends up creating a template that helps us understand what we're seeing as an explanatory model it also can predict future movement patterning. And so if the rectus femoris is stiff, 
or you have quad insufficiency or anterior hip capsules tight or you lack the motor control, we predict what your lunge is going to look like. We predict what your running is going to look like. We predict what, you know, how you're going to compensate in the squat or hinge. You know, if your calcaneus is locked, you should be able to do the same. And these, we should be able to anticipate, explain what we're seeing, anticipate what we're going to do and predict what we're seeing. And more importantly, reproduce that. And, and again, now you can hear my personal bias of needing to understand context and needing to understand patterns. And that's where we are now. And if we can do a better job, suddenly you stumble right into what people have been talking about for a while. How do we establish movement minimums, movement vital signs? But that's for general health. For the rest of us, I need to know you're at full power and you're actually working at full power. And if you can't, if you're missing your hip flexion and you're missing the God-given physiology to be able to squat down and take a poop in the woods, that's a problem. What's, um, <clears throat> I'm interested to, to take you out of, of CrossFit in a sense to, to ask you to tell me what you believe is the misunderstanding from the, like, because CrossFit has become a bit of a bit like the democratic and the Republican parties in the United States. There's this, you either believe in it or you don't believe in it kind of thing. And, and people banter about this on the internet all the time. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, when you're a believer in it, what, it, what are some of the things that you may miss what might be misgivings and what is the person who's not a believer in it misunderstand about it in your viewpoint? Well, I'm not speaking as a, as an advocate or, or as a representative of CrossFit, right? Um, I will point out that logic would dictate that something is true there, right? That there's something working. That's why there are 15,000 CrossFits on the planet. We are CrossFit number 21. So we've been doing this a long time. I saw the truth of this again, initially, what does it be? Well, Greg prioritized conditioning and he prioritized conditioning with being skilled in basic fundamentals of gymnastics, powerlifting and Olympic lifting calisthenics. Very simple. How you put those together is up to you. The outcomes are, you know, you, you know, in that model for us is we have this template of all the tools and a lot of variability in how people put those things together. Um, what I'll say is, you know, there's been a shift in high intensity exercise and people are a lot more comfortable working at these intensities, even within the CrossFit community, the things that we expected people to do, you know, when I went to my first level one course a long time ago, 14 years ago, um, there was a, we did this thing called fight gone bad. And, uh, there was, let's see, hundred people there. Um, I scored about a 300 and was top 10. And now we think 300 is a score for junior varsity girls rowing. Like that's the truth, right? I mean, like the world has changed, right? And, uh, you know, if someone pulled off a big score, that would be like, yeah, you're like a varsity athlete, you're like a 16-year-old girl, good job. You know, I know you're elite, but you're as elite as my 16-year-old athletes now. So that ship has sailed. And Barry's Boot Camp and Soul Cycle, and, you know, Orange Theory and look at whatever. And what you're seeing is that, the normalization where a lot of people's program ends up looking the same. You know, I spend, I'll get to spend a great deal of time at Exost. Bristigan, Mark Bristigan is a, is a good friend of mine and one, a person that I respect immensely. And their translation of how to get people prepped and ready for high-level sport and population health this really should be a template and a model for a lot of us. Um, and again, I may differ about the sort of methodologies but the outcomes matter the most. What I'll say about CrossFit is as it was intended as a general physical preparedness model and a health model that we could get people working at higher intensities, 
we could have a time to conversation about getting them to eat less carbohydrate, less refined carbohydrate, really important from the message from day one. And also you'll hear that, you know, in that message is this notion of tribe, you know, that people are, you know, they're front squatting in a group. And that's, that's what it feels like to be on a team in college. And that's really, that's what's missing. I think from people's understanding, the camaraderie, the, the fellowship, the, the, the culpability of being in a community because we need that more than ever. So, you know, Russ Green is the spokesperson of CrossFit. He and I are, we text and, and, um, you know, we were, we were talking about, he's like, look, if you went to Peloton or you did Peloton and you went to a Pilates class and lifted a weight and then went to church, he's like, that's a pretty good recipe for being a hundred years old, you know, like ate less sugar, went to soul cycle, did a little deadlifting, you know, we're in a, some kind of community book group, like you're going to do it. What I think is the, the Achilles for cross right now is that people try to make it all things to all people. And what I'll say is some of the workout volumes, which the original workout volumes were never that crazy. The idea was that this could be a training system and you could go out and still have another life afterwards. I think culturally what's happened overall is we've gotten all of us CrossFitters aside. And again, I can't talk to the, all the millions of CrossFit coaches, but we have become very enamored with the gym. And people like Bonderchuk, you know, were like, hey, you're strong enough. Go do your sport. Go practice sport more, you know. And there's a lot of feeling in the gym. And I will point at a lot of gym culture beyond CrossFit because the gym culture is fun, man. It's great. And a lot of people look great. And they, it's like we have this finally have this bodybuilding aesthetic and people are proud of their bodies and women are muscular and that's okay. And men have big engines and deadlift and but it's, if it's all recursive, if you just deadlift, you have more deadlifting. If you just, if you just do pull-ups, you get more pull-ups, right? We try to remind people, we're like, pull-ups aren't a sport. And I know CrossFit has the sport of fitness, and it's fun to test your fitness. I get that. And the games are different. Games are a different beast. But the rest of it is, why do we pull-ups? So we're more functional overhead, that we have capacity in the shoulder, we can develop stability, that when my athletes foosh, they don't kill themselves. So like all of these other sports, I'm like, are you actually training for a sport? How do you know your training is working because your sport gets better? And I think there's a lot of CrossFit coaches who see GPP and the capacities that people are doing because we're, we suddenly have, I mean, show me another community where more people are snatching 300. That is an Olympic lifting community. That's crazy. It's crazy, right? You know, um, in the last CrossFit Games, there was a uh, run, swim, run. And the men who won, went out and ran a 540 mile for their first mile. I mean, like, I'm like, bring it on. And then they, they, then they snatched over 300 and then they, you know, they deadlifted six and I, literally I'm like, or 550. And I'm like, okay, like this is some pretty impressive capacities here. So the question is, you know, where do I think we can get better as community is where do we start to tailor down? How much can we start to pull out so that our athletes can still go have a life out and then everywhere else, you know, because I have the good fortune of traveling around a lot, I do see that there is a, and we are enamored with skilled exercise correctives instead of the hard work. And, you know, you, people should be coming to the gym and have a little bit of fear and not every single day, but it should be hard work. And I think we've, we've sucked out some of the hard work for complexity. And that would be my critique of some of the other communities is that if you're afraid to do a little conditioning, you have a problem. If you can't mix it up, you have a problem. You know, mm -hmm. let me give you an example of something that's great. Uh, I was at Exos for their internal uh, kind of hosting summit and the, the great athletes there, and they went ahead and put up a 1,000 meter bursa climber challenge. 
I don't know the last time you were on a Versa climber, but for me, it was 1993. I know the last time I was on a climber, maybe 94. And uh, in college, we had a Versa climber. And my point is, you know, I'm like, well, let me test my fitness. This is something, you know, like, so they make a culture of competing fun. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the seriousness. Like, this is so serious. You're doing this tabletop bug crawl. with a, Like, it looks like a bunch of bullshit. We have forgotten that the gym is the place where people can be vulnerable and have fun and experiment and compete. And, and that might mean I just compete next to the lady next to me who's 65 who just kicked my ass, but we're still competing. And I, that would be my critique of the other direction, right? Is that we can probably critique, we could probably compete a little bit more. And the CrossFitters generally need to be able to wrap our heads around uh, training for more specific sports instead of GPP. And we're seeing that coaches are, I mean, we have, bobsledding coaches there are these you know these crossfit coaches now are working in all over sport because you know it turns out front squatting and running is not a gimmick it's litvinov that was the litvinov running you know front squat 400 kilo or 200 kilos for seven and then run a 400 i mean that sounds a lot like crossfit beautiful what's your uh what's your achilles heel mine yeah cookies <laughs> <laughs> um you know uh i think honestly um right now there's more work than any one person can do um i am trying to do a much better job of collabing and pointing at the people I think are doing great. And I've always been hundred percent transparent about, you know, my, my influences and, and where I got ideas and we need to bring more people to the table. And uh, you know, it's okay that we differ. I'm really I'm comfortable with that. And the reason I'm comfortable with that is that it's going to, we're not, if I have to give us a grade right now, and I'm talking about strength and conditioning and healthcare in our physio land or Cairo land is that, we get a D minus we haven't changed the ACL injury rates. We haven't taken Nick out of back pain. We, we were not doing, we're not reaching enough people and we need more messaging from as many different places. You stay on your side. I'll stay on my side. I'll meet you in the middle. We'll never meet in the middle because we have too much work to do. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's, you know, levering up and bringing a bigger tent is what I need to be doing. And that's really what my focus is for the next year and a half or so. I, we're probably going to put on a symposium in 2020 called state of the human, where we can really talk about, um, if you try to buy state of the human.com, it's already bought. So, uh, but the idea is we, we need to give people a better contextual image of what's happening and the sort of severity of what's happening. I think there's some of us who feel like we're at the top of the ship and we get a lot of really interesting and disparate information data sets. And we can sort of see we're all going towards the rocks and some of us aren't. We're, we're, our heads are in, the, in the, the troughs doing the work. We need someone to sort of create an opportunity where we can all talk about these experiences. Here's a good example. There's a new book that just came out. I'm blanking on the, the authors, but it's called JAWS, J-A-W-S. And it's written by a, like a clinical anthropologist and a, and a dentist. And what you're going to see is their talk about how culturally we have – sitting more we don't chew how we breathe all of these things are completely changing our facial structure which changes you know orthodontist like the amount of kids who need orthodontics the you're seeing that the mouth is actually a pretty interesting leading indicator of how we're doing as a, as a species and that if you even you know not to 
you know, hark back to paleolithic times. I think that's good, but you don't see hunter gatherers with any crowding. They all have their teeth and they're beautiful. And, you know, I, my kids have gone, one of my kids has gone into orthodontics and I'm like, wow, is this a Ponzi scheme for a nice jaw? Like why do, why do human beings, what's the error, you know, and it's not bad genetics. So I think there are a lot of these interesting tells around jaw structure, face structure, airway patency, how that affects breathing, how that affects sleep quality, how, you know, suddenly you're going to start to see, we're going to start to get, you know, in these disaster movies where like the lake boils a little bit, some fish die, and then there's a volcano crack over here. And right. There's all these kind of signs that things are, are about to go bad. I feel like that's a little bit of where we are currently because of the, the life that we found ourselves in. So we're going to have to uh, have some hard conversations with ourselves if we care about taking care of other humans. And I think mm-hmm. we do. Second last question. What's been the cost of being good at what you do? Well, um, I've had to grow up a lot. And I've had to um, become a lot more organized. I've had to live off of I calendar, I mean, my, you know, Google Cal, um, you know, you, what, what realizes that you can't, you have to be sophisticated. You have to, um, I didn't think I would ever work this hard ever. I don't, you know, I think there was a time in my life when I was sleeping in my truck, I was kayaking 300 days a year. I mean, life was simple. It was really simple. I was critically poor eating cottage cheese and apple sandwiches, but, uh, man, it was working. And I think, um, you know, what's the, what's the gift of my current world situation is that my wife is the CEO and she is an attorney and she's super brilliant and I get to work with her and she has a brain as a CEO that I just could never approximate the things that she can do and how she organizes. Um, I think uh, what's really interesting is that there's no edge between my friends what I do professionally, what I do personally, how I think, what I read, the whole thing is this integrated whole and there's no de- deviation. Like I don't escape from my life. My life is one continuum and I'm really lucky that way. And, um, you know, I also have realized that like you just, you, if you're going to be, find yourself in a leadership position, you really have to do a lot more advocating for other people and be reason, you know, reasonable and, uh, and just more sophisticated. So I think, you know, I I don't know if there's a cost to that. I'm sure my wife could say it, you know, um, my hair fell out because I wasn't sleeping a few years ago and I was so stressed and crushed and, you know, and killing myself to, uh, you know, there was a lot of, there was a time where I was doing a lot of teaching and writing the book, which came out, what we were writing the book six or seven years ago. And, um, it was grim. I was just like, I wasn't a great human being, you know, I was just like, I didn't, I didn't do anything fun. All I did was work. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, that's the cost. I think the mistake is working at, I think anyone who's successful works at an unsustainable pace. I think that's a universal, but once you're getting going, you have to pull back on the throttles. Otherwise you die and you, you burn your bridges and relationships to the ground and you lose your sense of purpose. And so sustainability is, is a big deal. When you uh, perish from this earth, which I hope is beyond a hundred years, <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to be remembered for? Well, so this I think is a sign of my maturity. I think, um, 
you know, I kidded around. You said, you know, what are some of the influences? And I, you know, I didn't have a, my dad wasn't around. I had a strange dad. And my dad was like the great Santini. He was the college quarterback and just had his own demons and was fucked up by his dad. And, you know, we had generations and generations of alcoholics in the family. You know, Starrett uh, is a relatively new, like two generation old way of pronouncing the word Starrett, which is an Irish name. And uh, Starrett is from County Cork. And I had a great grandfather who was an Irish cop. And I think uh, we developed a taste for the drink. And um, I didn't drink till I was 22. And I think that alcoholism was, you know, created a huge hole in my life. Uh, and um, I think subsequently, I felt, always felt like I needed to prove myself a lot. And to that end, I would say that if you'd asked me a few years ago, I'd say, I'd really like to improve physical therapy. I'd like to, you know, change how affect the world in a way that, you know, I was able to uniquely. And now if you ask me that same question, I'm like, I'm like, well, I hope I was a great dad. Hope I was a really good husband, you know, and a good friend. And then I was like, and I hope my work, you know, gave some, some, someone a different idea. So I think that's the maturity is that, you know, it comes back into self into center of self. And the irony there is that when you work on that first, you can actually get more work done and that it's really sustainable and more meaningful. So, uh, you know, all of this, you know, we have so, we are blessed with the resources and the contacts and the connections and the loose network affiliations. I work, just the people I work with are so smart. And I feel like if we don't set the bar and get a better system and don't improve, like shame on us. Like, I feel like we could, we could really write the ship in this generation, but it's, we're going to have to have more conversations with difficult conversations and not be so distracted by shiny things. Kelly, it's been a deep pleasure chatting with you and listening to you. It's uh, I, I feel a synergy amongst us. I hope we run into each other uh, some other way sometime in the future, but thank you for taking an hour with me. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure. And I, you know, everyone, anyone who's listening, people will probably skip this one, but I've uh, just been, uh, you know, I appreciate the rambling and I feel like it's really important. I feel like, you know, everyone's squatting now so we can have the next conversation. You know, everyone, everyone knows that maybe you shouldn't eat as much, uh, you know, as many cookies as you, as you should, you know, drink less, sleep more. Now let's have the next combo. So I really appreciate the time and the ability to kind of have these level conversations. Yeah. Well, you take care of yourself and thanks very much for your time. Thanks, sir. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>